Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Have you ever had anybody that learned a lesson too well? I mean, even with your children, sometimes you have told them things, but maybe they got it too well. Now, I asked Leslie last night or so, I had been working on this this week, and I said, Leslie, could you give me an example of what I'm trying to talk about? And she said, no, I don't think so. I don't know that they've ever listened to anything we've said, (laughs) much less too well. I said, you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you say something to maybe your children or somebody else, and they just kind of take it to the extreme. I know it might not happen in your life, but it seems to happen in the preacher's life, at least even in the preacher's family's life. Maybe you will look at your children, you will say to them, I need you to speak more clearly. Okay, got that, Dad? Everything's fine. You want me to speak clearly. You don't have children that respond in such a way? Some of you are just dedicating your children. You say, that happens. They act like that at some point. There are so many people that can take things to an extreme. I had a staff member one time that I asked that they would give a short report during business meeting. I don't remember why something was going... I don't know. Maybe Ole Miss was going to play that. I don't know. But I said, "Would would you speak? just briefly reports everybody tonight. So that staff member got up and she proceeded to say, programs, fine, ministry, good, events, planned. (laughs) It's not quite what I meant. Take it to the extreme. When I come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's as though the believers at Corinth They have taken what Paul has said. They've heard what he spoke to them, the instructions that he gave previously, and yet they had gone to an extreme with it. And Paul tries to write and rectify that misunderstanding. He tries to speak to them about a biblical perspective of marriage itself and of the relationship that we are to see within that marriage context. Notice, if you will, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, the Corinthians had heard what Paul had said previously. And even in chapter 6, Paul had addressed sexual immorality. He had called 
the believers to live lives of purity. Remember he had said to them that their bodies, the, their bodies themselves were actually temples of the Holy Spirit. And as such, those bodies should be treated with a sense of holiness. And they should demonstrate purity and righteousness in their lives. Now that's what Paul had said. And that's what Paul had said previously to them in another letter. He had spoken to them about living their lives of holiness and purity. But what they had done is they had taken that idea and they had gone to an extreme. There is belief, and I think after my study this week, I am convinced that there were those who would come and they would say, you know, my body is supposed to be used for purity. I am the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And thus, because of that, I should not engage in any type of sexual activity. I think that's what they had been saying here. Not even in the context of marriage. And Paul writes and says, you totally misunderstood what I was trying to say to you. Now, he's probably not the last preacher that was misunderstood. There are many days when uh, I have finished preaching and, and maybe right after the service or perhaps... During that week, someone would come up to me and they would say something like, yeah, I got exactly what you were saying. It was, I I love it when it happens like this. You know, somebody says, that was a wonderful message. It was tremendous. You are one of the best preachers that has ever, I mean, you can just see the pride. You can, I love those moments until they say, and I realize that you were speaking just to that other person and what they were talking about and, and this is what, Totally missed the point. Totally missed the point. And for Paul, it happened to him. He said, you have totally missed the point. You have taken this to an extreme. Yes, it is not right for us to engage in sexual immorality. That's what he says. Yes, that we are not to engage in things that are sexually impure. We're not to do that, Paul says. But he says... It is within the context of marriage that you find sexual fulfillment. That's what he says. Earlier he had talked about immorality. Now he talks about fulfillment. And he talks about that relationship. To the married, he says to them, recognize the companionship that you've been given, that God has called you to. Recognize the companionship. Earlier in chapter 6, he had reminded us in verse 16 of that Old Testament passage, that Old Testament blueprint for marriage. There he had said that the two would become one flesh. In Genesis, we were told that a man would leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two would become one flesh. Remember that scripture? A man will leave his father and mother. How many of you are proud when that happens? How many of you want to remind them that you're supposed to leave? It has been called the leave and cleave passage. You leave and you cleave to your wife, to that new family. God is doing something in you in a fresh. He wants to build a new family unit. That was the design. And Paul has reminded them of that. 
that God wants married couples to experience this unique companionship, this unique coming together. And marriage is that context in which you can find a wonderful relationship. You can find wonderful companionship, right? I really believe that outside of our relationship with God, that our married relationship is the greatest relationship that we can experience on the face of this earth. I believe it is. I believe it should be the primary relationship. Now, I know we just had parent-child dedication and beautiful children, and I've got a few myself that I I would uh, nominate for the most beautiful and most handsome children. Just going to happen, okay? I would do that, love my kids. But I believe that according to what I see in the Scripture, that the primary relationship God has given me is with my wife outside of my relationship with Christ that is it is with my wife and that that relationship I have with her sets the tone for all of the other relationships including the relationships I have with my children it is you have the two becoming one and 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 you really do before you know it you're thinking alike you've got hopefully the same purpose you're hopefully going toward the same goals, it it is somewhat frightening sometimes that Leslie and I can complete each other's sentences. I don't know if that's scary for her or for me, that she's started thinking like I do or know the way I think, but it's as though through that time, God has allowed me in these last 15 plus years to, to form that relationship with her of a, of a companionship, of, of coming together. And that's really what Paul is saying here. He said to the married, I want you to recognize that you are supposed to experience companionship. And yes, even in the physical realm, he says, in the physical realm is where you find that fulfillment that you will not find, you will not find in other areas. That's what he says. He says, it is only within that context of marriage that sexual fulfillment should be seen. He even says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Notice here this mutual idea of fulfillment that he proposes. He says, it is within that context that you can experience true physical fulfillment. Willard Harley, he wrote a book. I've mentioned his name before. I use it a lot in my premarital counseling uh, sessions. As we prepare for a wedding, as we get ready for somebody getting married, I pull that book out and I'll use it quite often along with some other resources. But in Willard Harley's book, he lists the five top needs of the husband and the five top needs of the wife. The five top needs of the wife. Number one, I'm just going to give you that one today, is affection. Is affection. You like for your husband, hopefully, wives, to be affectionate. Would you agree? Perhaps this is your opportunity. You might ought to agree. (laughs) 
like for them to be affectionate. The top need for the husband is sexual fulfillment. Not both the same, affection and sexual fulfillment. But those are the top needs. And what Paul says here is basically is that you ought to be attempting to meet each other's needs in a mutual way. In a way that is sacrificial, not in a way that is demeaning. He says even in verse 5 that you do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. That there is a consent on both parts that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, God uses even that marriage context to, um, to take care of you even in regard to temptation, that this is the proper expression of sexual fulfillment. Now, may I stop and say this here? There are some needs that only God can fulfill in your life. Because I hear this all the time. I hear a man who will come and who will say, well, you know what, she doesn't take care of my needs. Or I'll hear a wife who will say, you know, he just does not fulfill my needs anymore. Now, while this morning I am encouraging each and every one of us in a married relationship to do what we can to appropriately fulfill each other's needs, I also want to say to you, though, there are some needs only God can provide. And there's some of you in, in a married relationship that you are expecting things from your spouse that you need to find in God. Your spouse is not the one who is going to fulfill your ultimate peace and that inner peace in your life. Your spouse is not the one who is going to be able to look in your life and give you an eternal type of joy like God can. Now, it is happy... Marriage can be very happy, and there can be great moments. But we need to recognize that there are limitations, even of our spouse, that God is the one who fulfills our deepest needs. A few years ago, back in Picayune, I was um, in my office one afternoon, and there was a young man who had... Um, Stopped by to see me just a few moments. He wanted to let me know that um, he was leaving town and he was leaving his wife. And uh, he said she uh, she's ready to, to leave. She's already decided that um, I'm not the person for her. And if that's the case, I, I can't continue to live here and live in this area. Um, because Brother Reggie, I'll never forget what he said, because Brother, Re, Brother Reggie, she is my God. And if I can't have her and she fulfill the needs, then the, there's no reason for me to even continue living myself. And I remember trying to talk to him, trying to encourage him, trying to see if I could get together with both him and his wife and let's talk things out. But I never forget, I'd never heard anybody just come out and just confess that like he did. And I, I began talking to him about this, that yes, there are needs that need to be met. 
But there's some needs that only God can meet. And you need to get a right perspective about this. He left my office that day, and that's been now 12 years ago or so. And I still have never heard from him. And I pray every day that he would somehow recognize that his needs, his ultimate needs, can only be touched by God. Because, you know, that, that's what's happening in so many of our marriages. We're expecting our spouses to meet needs that God never intended for them to meet in our lives. Yes, whatever we can do, physically and that is appropriate, we need to meet the needs of our spouse. But we need to recognize those well. There are some things only God can do in our lives. But Paul says here, recognize the companionship. Yes, that's a need. Companionship, the great, even physical companionship. Then he says to them as well, recognize the commitment that they're to have to one another. Verse 10, it says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, he says, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And he continues on. Basically what he says is, is that you need to remain committed. We live in a generation that either embraces one or two extremes. One, divorce is not a big deal. Or two, ostracize everybody else that's been divorced. We usually live within those extremes. But somehow I think we could find a middle ground where we can say, we can say, that people ought to demonstrate faithfulness in their lives and yet also recognize that God heals the broken and God is able to build individuals and take care of them in their lives. I think somehow we ought to be able to affirm both of those. But to the married couples, what we need to be saying in particular is faithfulness is what God wants in our lives. God wants us to experience faithfulness and and commitment that word commitment that word kind of seems to be slipping from our vocabulary these days or at least the true idea of what commitment is commitment does not mean that i'm committed to you as long as i'm emotionally happy that's not true commitment. As long as I'm emotionally happy, as long as everything seems to be going well, then I'm good. That's not commitment. Last night, we had a wedding here in this place. It was a, it was a beautiful wedding. Um, we went through the vows and all of the oaths that they were taking. And, and you know, I didn't hear either the, the groom or the bride say anything like, Hey, I'm with you as long as everything seems to be going well. I didn't hear them say that. What if we had heard them say such a thing? Well, everybody would have been like shocked, right? Some of you who are here would have insisted that I stop the ceremony at that moment. Because it did not make sense. Because that's not a vow. That's not a... Well, it's not a true commitment. Commitment says that even though things don't always go my way, I'm still true to you. 
And even though difficulty may come, I still remain in this relationship. I do what I can. Even, notice here it says that faithfulness was even expected for those who had unbelieving spouses. Verse 14 of that 7th chapter said, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And he continues on in this conversation. He basically says, if there's any way to live even with that unbelieving spouse. Now, in Corinth, remember that many of these had come out of their pagan backgrounds. Many of them were saved even after they had been married. So they were living in this kind of world of, should I remain faithful to my unbelieving spouse or should I divorce them and find a belief? It's this idea that I heard once. A guy came into my office and he said, some of you don't want to come into my office, but I never use your name. I promise you that. Guy came into my office uh, a few years ago and he said something like, you know, I think God is calling me to, um, to marry this woman because she is much more spiritual than my present wife. I looked at him, I said, you know what? There's no way you can convince me God's in that. He said, well, no, no, my friend, I could do so much more for the God. And he did. God is not in that. And you want me to tell you why God's not in that? Because God has called you to remain faithful to your wife. That's what he said. Old Testament, New Testament, he has called us to remain faithful. And the one thing I've recognized about God is he does not contradict his word. If he said that in the past, he means that now in the future. And for the Corinthians who would come and say, Well, Paul, we could do so much for the kingdom if you had let us marry believers at this point. Give us an excuse to go ahead and divorce and let us go ahead. Paul says, absolutely not. Not I saying this, he says. The Lord says this, that you are to remain committed and faithful. And he says, you know what? Through this process, hopefully that unbelieving spouse would come to salvation. By your testimony. As you are called to peace. To the married, he says, recognize the companionship. He says, recognize the commitment. But notice as you continue on down, you see how he speaks to the unmarried as well. To the unmarried as well. In verse 6, he had said, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. In other words, this is my Paul just sharing with you. This is not a commandment from God, but this is my sharing. He says, I wish that all men were given as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in in that, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Listen to what he says. He says, to the unmarried, recognize the calling. Recognize 
the call. Later on, he will look at this in uh, verse 22 or so. He says, For who, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Verse 24, Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he is called. He basically says to the unmarried that you are to recognize the calling upon your life. Now, Paul just affirmed marriage. Paul is not anti-marriage. He is for marriage. He talks about companionship. He talks about commitment. But he also recognizes that there are many who are unmarried who have a calling upon their life to remain in that circumstance, in that situation. And I think we ought to communicate that more in our churches today. Again, not that we're anti-marriage, but we recognize that God has a calling upon certain people's lives that they should not marry. And we should affirm that. And be, We have a culture today. Do we not have a culture today that says to all of our younger people coming up, you must get married. You must get married. If you don't get married, then, you know, you've got to get married. But doesn't that fly in the face of what Paul and the biblical account says? It's okay to be single if that is your calling in life. I want you to hear me. I want all of those who are young, those who are single... If God has called you to be single, then rejoice in that and live your life for him. Don't give in simply because of what culture dictates to you. Well, I could give it to you in a lot of other biblical ways, but I'll pass along a little bit of wisdom from Leslie's grandmother because I think you'll remember it better that way. Leslie's grandmother used to say, it is better to be an old maid than wish you were one. <laughs> now, I think she told Leslie that before we got married. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, you shouldn't do something, and that's all across our lives, in every aspect of our practice. We should not do something in our lives just because the culture says, this is what you're supposed to do. We're supposed to do what God has called us to do. And for Paul, Paul was single. And it was fine. Now, it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. Thank you. It's not mandatory that preachers have to be single. It's not mandatory you have to be single in order to accomplish things for the kingdom. What he says, though, is that, that it is fine and it is good to live according to God's calling in your life. And he'll even argue. As you look on down, he'll even argue that there are certain times and these times in which the circumstances would say it's good for you to be single. In verse 33, for example, he says, But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, 
there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, but she may be holy both in body and spirit. He, he talks here about, verse 26, a present distress. In other words, there are things going on, a present distress, the situation of the world, that it might be fine. If that's the way God has called you, that it might be fine for you to remain single because you need to focus upon serving the kingdom. He says there can be so many other distractions, but he says, if God's called you to this, the present distress, the circumstances dictate this in your life, he says you embrace it and you serve God accordingly. So he says recognize to the unmarried. He says recognize the calling. And he says recognize the circumstances. I spoke about this one time. The next morning I received a text from a young man that I love like a brother. He texts me and he says, all right, Brother Reggie, heard what you said yesterday. I understand all that you're talking about. But what if I don't feel called? What are you going to do about that? I said, brother, pray, be patient, listen to God's work and word in your life. Remain content wherever you are because I think that's what he says to all you see to the married he says recognize recognize the companionship recognize the commitment to the unmarried he says recognize the calling and recognize the circumstances in which you are living but to all he says basically recognize the contentment that God has given us Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called, verse 24. So many other verses here. We don't have time to get to all of them today. I'm just, what he basically says is learn to be content. That's such an elusive search for some of us. Just this idea of learning to be content. Learning to be content in our lives and where we are and in the relationships that we have. Learning to be content. Happiness. True happiness. True happiness is built upon a relationship. True happiness is not just an emotion. Most of the time when we say we're not happy about something, we're talking about the emotion of happiness. But when you look in the scripture and you see happiness defined and described, it's more of a joy. It's more of a contentment that one has. See, happiness, the emotion of happiness, is based upon the present circumstances. And the present circumstances will change. Circumstances change daily. But a contentment, a joy, it comes from something that is much greater. I think it comes, I think it comes from a relationship that we have with God. That joy, that contentment that we can have through all things. And you know what? 
I really believe that type of joy is a choice that we make as well. It's a choice. Why would, why would Paul look at the Philippians and say, Rejoice or be happy if it were not their choice to be happy and to rejoice? Why would he give them such a command if they did not have some type of choice in the matter? To say, hey, I'm going to be content. I'm going to recognize the calling in my life. I'm going to rejoice as I am married. I'm going to rejoice if God has called me to be single. I will rejoice and give him glory. Contentment and rejoicing. We saw those children lined up earlier with their parents. And there are so many things we want to pour into their lives. So many things we want to teach them. We want to instruct them. So many things we want to pass along to them. But may I say to you that one of the greatest things I believe that we can pass along to them is just the simple truth that they can find contentment in Christ. And that that contentment can be apparent in their relationships with others. To the married, that they would be content in what God has called them and in the context that he has placed them. I would even say to you, parents that were standing here, one of the best things you can do for your kids, love your spouse. You want to raise healthy children, dads? Love their mamas. You want to see kids that can understand the contentment of Christ? Mamas love their daddies. And show them what true contentment and faithfulness is. To all of us, he says we ought to learn to be content. To experience joy. To be happy in our relationships. Oh, and how God blesses. Whether you're in the state of marriage or you're in the state of singleness, the contentment that comes in your life that can somehow ultimately bring God the glory, that is a tremendous experience for you and for your family. And it is a tremendous experience that I pray that we would all recognize this morning that we would be content, we would be happy where God has placed us. And that we would use those relationships to declare His glory. That's my prayer. And I hope it's yours. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, which is so practical for us. Lord, you touch our hearts through your word. You touch our minds. And Lord, you even touch our actions. God, as we come this morning, as we think of your word, as you communicated it through the Apostle Paul to the married and to the unmarried as well. Father, that today you would strengthen each believer.
Father, I pray for the marriages that are represented here. And Lord, I know that daily these marriages are under attack. God, I pray that in this place today, there would be a recommitment. Lord, to faithfulness, to our spouses, to our families. God, I pray that ultimately, whether we're married or we're single, that today we once again would recommit ourselves to the call that you placed upon our lives. And that you would use whatever state we are in to bring you honor and glory. Father, move now in our midst. Speak to us through this moment of invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning?